What is time? Time is malleable. Yeah, but that's a Pygmalion myth. Nick and Nora's infinite playlisty sort of night. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, who drives a plain old 2005 Honda Accord. <laughs> and I'm James Earl, and my favorite movie is Groundhog's Day. And this month, we're reading, quite appropriately, The Do-Over by Lynn Painter, which is basically just Groundhog's Day, but Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there's going to be spoilers in this. Like all of our episodes, we're going to talk about the book as a whole. So if you plan on reading this one, maybe read it first and then come back and listen to this podcast. And if you don't know what the Groundhog's Day trope is, go watch Groundhog's Day first, then read the book and then listen to us. Yeah. Be a person in society. It's a very important trope. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It's my turn for the summary. I believe in you. You can do it. And don't worry. You can do over, and we just won't include the bad versions. No consequences. Yeah, it's my day of no consequences. It's my summary of no consequences. Summary of no consequences. Okay, and uh, three, two, one, go. Okay, so Emily Hornby is a high school junior or senior, and she is valedictorian, potentially a valedictorian. She plans a lot. She wants to go to a good school. She's got a summer internship lined up. And uh, she is on her way to school one morning on Valentine's Day to have the perfect Valentine's Day with a list of things that she needs to accomplish. And on her way, she gets into a car accident with a mysterious man, uh, guy in her class named Nick. And then uh, everything goes to hell. She sees her boyfriend kiss somebody. Her father tells her she, she's, he's moving to Houston. Everything is bad. And then she relives that day over and over and over again, tries to fix things. And then one day she's like, you know what? I'm going to do a day of no consequences. And she does whatever she wants. And then that ends up being a day that sticks. And then um, she ends up falling in love with Nick during the day of no consequences. And then she has to live with all the consequences in the final scenes. And she ends up with Nick. What? She ends up with Nick? Who saw that coming? <laughs> Not her cheating boyfriend, who's only perfect on paper? I think I made it through on the, the first try. I think that's okay. I think that's an okay summary. I spent a little too much time on the, the beginning, but it's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's the premise. It's important. It's setting up the day that we will have to relive as a reader, listener, for the rest of the book. One thing to give context to is that her parents are divorced. They've got equal custody, 50-50, but she seems to like living with her dad a little bit more. So the dad moving to Houston is more important than I made it seem in that intro. Well, that I feel like is a good place to start is mm -hmm. her home life. Because I feel like we start every day at her home life, which is at her dad's place where she has her like new blended family with her stepmom and half-sibling and step-sibling and that chaos. James, I was curious what you thought of the depiction of a child of divorced parents was. It seemed like it was uh, like an every other day thing that was sort of like my experience growing up because she has Valentine's Day with her father and then it seems like the next day she's supposed to go with her mother. I don't know what my thoughts were about it. I thought it was interesting just like narratively because we don't see the mother or get any real information on the mother because we're living the same day over and over again and that was the dad's day. So we don't really get characterization of the mother until the very end and she just comes in and she's a, a kind of a monster and then all of a sudden isn't a monster. Yeah, I I think that they were trying to show some characterization of like why she is the way that she is because of her divorced parents, understandably. Like, we're all root of our parents. Two things mainly I saw, which was, one, 
that she's used to people not remembering her because they're always like, whose day is it? Yeah. Who's supposed to get the cake? And they they just like don't talk to each other. They don't really understand what's happening. If she's long, she causes no trouble, which she can either do by being a straight A student or just by manipulating everybody. Yeah. <laughs> either or, like no one's going to give her any attention, which is then what is what a contrast of the day of no consequence dissolves and all the attention is on her after she's been able to escape any attention forever. Right. Nearly all of her confessions are deal with her feeling invisible mm-hmm. and that she's all alone in the world and that she doesn't have anybody that really cares about her. Yeah. My experience, though, is like, I don't know, my assumption, and I don't know if this is true, but my assumption is that in divorces, the status quo is that there's like the Disney dad trope and that the mother by default gets most of the custody and then the father is like every weekend or every other weekend or something like that or like one weekday night a week or whatever maybe this has changed since i was a child but in situations where there's joint custody like 50 50 split that usually means that both the parents fought for that and like wanted the child i guess there was like a little bit of a disconnect between her feeling wanted and like the reality of a situation that almost necessitates them both wanting her i'm sure it's like a disconnect of just like even though you know that like you don't know that in your soul of soul. Yeah, yeah. So and the second thing is like the wanting to not feel invisible, but feeling the pressure to be invisible is one thing that came out from the divorce. And I think the other thing is her hyper-controlling nature, I think we're supposed to attribute to her mother. Because I think we're supposed to like see that there's like a, like where is she getting this? And then we don't really understand like why isn't she eating the pie? Yeah. Until we like meet her mother. That part to me felt also a little unpacked. Like, she keeps on talking like her dad has our home, but she likes being with her mom. Yeah. I am curious what happens at the end of the book because what ends up happening is next school year, her senior year, her dad and grandmother are moving to Texas and her mom is staying in Omaha. And I'm like, what is she going to do? I don't know. Yeah, it's completely left unresolved of, of what that decision is going to be. But, you know, Eric put her together with Nick. So that was so interesting. So are we getting into the ending right now? Yeah, let's straight into the end why not we'll bounce around what is time time is malleable that's true who cares let's do it in a lot of Groundhog's Day situations movies the reason behind the Groundhog's Day is very rarely explained it's kind of just like a it happened and you need to like learn a lesson to a certain extent right and I think we can talk to like what, what was the lesson in this one in this book it was very clear like actually the ghost of Nick's dead brother used the magic of his old jacket to get his brother or girlfriend yes <laughs> it was not the magic pepper it was not the magic pepper as we all expected it was not the magic pepper so just to reflect on the the trope a little bit more groundhog's day the og has bill murray learn to relinquish the ego he becomes his best self through learning the piano and lots of other things And he believes that he's going to be redeemed by getting the love of Andy McDowell. And that ends up not being true. So he like pursues that for a long time. He gets sort of creepy and stalkerish about it. And then he has to let go of that like need to be loved and then just like act for other people. And then he gets the love and all the attention he needs. So it's like by relinquishing the ego, he becomes an active member of the community he becomes beloved and like lives his best life from there in russian doll there's the collaboration between the two people who are living in groundhog's day and the like mutual support that they need to uh have for each other 
in Before I Fall, the great YA novel, she has to save her classmate who is suicidal. Everything you're describing, and this is what I thought was really interesting about this book, is in most of the scenarios, it is exactly the original Groundhog's Day trope, which is it's the giving up of the ego. Yes. Is what saves you. Yes. That's a, that's exactly where I was going with this. Is like this is the common thread. And this is <laughs> And this is like a complete inversion of the trope. Yes. And I can't tell is that brilliant? Yes. Or is that like missing the fucking point? Yes, exactly. Because you're stuck in this time <laughs> loop that literally revolves around you. And like so you you are the thing mm-hmm. that is changing and everything else is staying the same like everybody else is just muppets at that point they're non-player characters or whatever playable characters yeah and then you will need to learn how to care about them anyway and like that that giving up of the ego is profound and that's why that trope works so well with that lesson or whatever is that it ends up being about like care and collaboration or whatever even if the people are muppets in your egocentric reality that you are living in and then this one God, the thing about this one that is so weird for me is that she basically learns that she's not the main character of the story, which, like, cosmically, she is not the main character of the universe in this one, where it's it's Nick. Nick is the main character of the universe, where his dead brother has come in to, like, stop the universe so that he can find love. And that's the, that's the thing? I don't know, man. But also what's weird about that is... Right, it is like Nick is the main character, but actually the main character is Emily. Also, side note, her name is Emily Elizabeth, which is the main character from Clifford the Red Dog. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Elizabeth. I hope that was intentional. I was just like, I lost it when they called her Emily Elizabeth. Anyways, what's interesting is like it ends on her most selfish day. Yes. The day of no consequences, every single one of these tropes has to have. You're going to do something crazy. You're going to like right. beat Palm Springs, do like a crazy car chase, and then you all die. And then the day restarts. Like there's always going to be like one of those crazy yeah. days of no consequences, but it never ends there because yeah. a day of no consequences is innately a selfish day. Right, right. And so for it to end on that day, because I feel like the lesson the book is actually trying to teach us is that speak your mind. Like, it's okay to be selfish. Like, just don't be, like, a perfect little princess. Yeah. But I'm not convinced that's the lesson we should be learning. Yeah, no, I'm thinking... Because they also, like... I'm thinking about Bill Murray's Day of No Consequences when he has the groundhog drive the car. And it's so funny. And you're like, don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. <laughs> right, but that's, like, for Bill Murray's amusement. Like, for her own amusement, she steals a Porsche and it gets impounded. Yeah, yeah. Also, everybody in this entire book drives oldies luxury cars. <laughs> Every single character. Yeah. Every movie slash book in this trope has the day of no consequences. This one, the day of co- no consequences, takes up like a third of the book. I don't know what the actual thing is, but like it goes on to the point where as a reader, you know that this is going to be the one that lasts because the day of no consequences should not last as long as it as it does in this book. Mm-hmm. It is an inherently selfish day, which goes against trope, which you know, can be interesting. This is also something I struggled with with this book is that her status quo is that she's a planner, that she like has goals, she pursues them, and she's meticulous about it. She's got the lists and everything like that. And then her day of no consequences, she throws out the list, she goes for it. But then the lesson that she learns is that she should be living for her. And, or you know, that's what she says, at least. She says explicitly, like, I should just like do what I want. Those two things are not a binary. She was feeling alone and then living for herself as in like 
planning her future and doing things that she wanted to do. It's also really confusing to me. And people are allowed to have contradictions, but I'm like wondering if like in the editing process, like they changed a bit of her character and like old parts of it were still there. Because like on the Day of No Consequences, she talks at length with Nick about contentious that baseline happy is like, she believes in happily ever afters and you can be happy forever. And Nick's like, no, happy is a fleeting emotion, yes, which is yeah. correct. <laughs> no one is just happy forever. That is not just like a thing. Yeah. But she like professes that. And then she also at one point, and I highlighted this quote because I was really confused because she said, I know that I'm the only one who truly cares about my happiness. So I make it a priority. That's a, no, that's a, that's literally exactly what I was thinking where she like plans out her own happiness and lives for her. Right. But then she acts beleaguered. Like there's also this one recurring thing that happens in the day that I'm always baffled by, which is her boss calls her to pick up a shift at work. And if she is the character that we're supposed to like believe that she is, that she's like, oh, I always take the extra shifts. I always blah, blah, blah. She would have done it. We would have seen that in the day. And then she would learn to not take the shift later in like future cycles. Yeah. But instead, she immediately is like lies and then pretends to be sick and goes home <laughs> on the first day. Right. Right. So already showing that she prioritizes her happiness. Yeah. The only lesson she really learns is like, don't date a guy who's good on paper. No, th- this is literally exactly what I have in my notes as well is like, what? what is the change there? Because she was prioritizing her mental health. She was prioritizing her future. She was, like, prioritizing all the things she wants exactly because she feels alone and nobody else is looking out for her. And then at the end, she's like, now I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to do the things I want, which is strange. So one, one way of explaining this, maybe, is that at the beginning, she is pursuing normative signifiers for happiness and then she changes to like more authentic, individualized, personal forms of happiness. So she like wants the f- fancy internship uh, because she wants to go to the fancy college. How dare they accuse Northwestern of a tabulation error? How dare they? <laughs> Sorry, she wants to go to the fancy college that apparently makes tabulation errors, I guess. Right, the fancy college, the fancy internship, the boyfriend who's going to be valedictorian, who on paper is perfect for her. So there's all these like normative poles that she's pursuing, maybe because she feels like she's supposed to pursue them, but hasn't done a lot of reflection. So maybe she's pursuing like her own happiness and prioritizing that, but she doesn't actually understand what her own happiness is, which is a more complex thing than we usually see in these kinds of books. Right. Just because you have a lot of privileges doesn't mean that you don't feel like a victim because of the things that have happened to you. I feel like there's always a bit of a complication in like these sorts of books about like paying for college. And there's an innate like classism statement about that as well. But she like talks repeatedly about how much she needs a full ride to Northwestern. And like if she gets into, and I'm pretty sure what the program she was supposed to get into is the same program I did. Only I did it for theater and not journalism, which is the Cherubs program. Like she's going to like be able to then like get a scholarship because her parents wasted all their money in the divorce. But then she also lives in a world where she is basically exclusively wears Ralph Lauren polo dresses. Right. right. Her dad drives a Porsche and her grandma drives a Mustang. To be fair, a Porsche that he redid, sure. that he like fixed up. Sure. But yeah. And maybe it is like a question of like these status symbols, right? It's like rather than saving up all of her coffee money for college, it's like I'm going to save all, all my coffee money to buy my boyfriend a coach wristband. Mm-hmm. Prioritizing the status It's just a very interesting sort of dichotomy. Yeah. So maybe it's more the story of her learning what she actually wants 
and then prioritizing that. That's a good sympathetic reading. Yeah. I feel like I kind of what I wanted her to realize in the book is that she is selfish and selectively manipulative. <laughs> like, <laughs> like stop being a victim to a certain extent. I mean, whatever. We're all out to be victims. I don't care. Yeah. Like for Nick to be like, you do prioritize your happiness. Like you went home. What she actually learns is how to speak to her parents. Be able to say like, I need you is like potentially the biggest lesson that she learns. Like versus like one of her confessions was she pulls a fire alarm to wake them up on vacation because she doesn't know how to communicate being like, I want you to take me to Disneyland. Right. And I realized after I finished it that the, the day of no consequences, she doesn't actually tell her father, you're the one who feels like home. Like that's a really nice scene in one of those early iterations of the day. And that is not repeated on a day that sticks. And so she has to like go back and do that. But yeah, learning how to have those in direct intimate conversations with her parents and say, I want to feel more loved. I want to be around you is an important thing that she learns for sure. Also, I think it's crazy that in every single one of the days, her dad starts off with being like, so the family's moving to Houston. How do you feel about that? Pause. Also, you wrecked your car and it exploded and it set on fire. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what is this order of operations? My dad would not start with moving to Houston. Also, you blew up your car. The fact that the car is totaled and explodes and nobody ever really talks about how crazy that is. Like, she gets to school and people are asking her questions and she's not like, dude, my car exploded this morning. <laughs> I realize I'm, I'm being, like, a bit, like, facetious with the whole explosion, but it sets on fire. They talk about the fire department having to, like, set out the fire. And then she makes it back within first period. Like, she's not on time. I'm like, there is no way in hell in the middle of the snow. And it goes into, like, all of the things where I'm like, who edited this book? There was also a scene in it where she talks about all the things she's doing in order to prevent the disasters of that day. And one is like, in order to prevent my boyfriend from kissing Macy, I hide in my car and then I like, I honk it really, really loudly. And then literally two paragraphs down, she's like, I tried every way I could to save my car, but I never could. And then I'm like, but then how were you able to honk your car horn? Oh, that's really funny. I didn't even notice that. Her car never makes it to the high school. That's true. Right. And yet she's honking her horn. Oh, man. Yeah, that's bad editing. That's bad editing. That's true. Okay, I want to talk about the part that I thought was the weirdest about this. Also at the end, she has the jacket. She falls asleep in the jacket. The jacket, we learn, is Eric's. And in literature, when this kind of thing happens, that means that the characters are being doubled. That you're like asked to compare Emily with Eric. Their names even sound sort of similar. Then you realize, oh, okay, Emily is a surrogate Eric for Nick. And that just gets super weird then because now this is like a partnered intimate relationship with a person who's being doubled as his dead brother and the language around describing it was very clearly that it was like he used to have these times with eric like the day is described as being something that eric would have really loved and so now he has replaced his dead older brother with with his chemistry partner who he is going to have sexy times with that seems really weird yeah i think it's weird and i also think another thing that was weird that was like double a is his brother dies in like basically a car accident, ATV accident. Right, right. And the whole day centers on a car accident. Yeah. Like the reason that like Nick and Emily connect yeah. every day is a car accident. Yeah. And that to me is also really interesting of like Eric bringing them together through the awful thing that had killed him. Yeah, there's a lot of just messy messiness there. So in doing this and in her being doubled as Eric 
one of the consequences of this is that the day of no consequences, she becomes a manic pixie dream girl that is just like living without consequences and doing whatever she wants and climbing up buildings and you know, you do all this this wild stuff, and then the male character learns to love again. And this is just a Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope that is, like, famously a fairly sexist trope because that means the woman is there simply for the moral or life-affirming journey of the male protagonist. And I've never seen a book that has the Manic Pixie Dream Girl as the narrator before <laughs> but it seems like that's what this was um excuse you you just watched falling for christmas the Lindsay lohan movie where she's the main character with amnesia yeah but that's a pygmalion myth that's a pygmalion <laughs> myth that's not a manic pixie dream girl that's like the man creates the woman that is his ideal but i think that the related themes because i think it, it all about it is like to the real person in stone is that man like in both instances that woman is created into order to bring him to life. Mm. Either way, you create her, right? Like, even if she's not a manic pixie dream girl, we live from 500 days of summer, you're the one putting that on her. Yeah. yeah. It all comes back to women are just like blank slates for men to feel yeah. alive again. The vehicles for male moral development. Yeah. I can accept that, like, the big Malian myth is hierarchically nested beneath the. Manic Pixie Dream Girl myth. I've just never heard it phrased like that before. That like that's a subgenre <laughs> of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is the Pygmalion. Is that true of um, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane story? That name of the movie I'm forgetting. My Fair Lady. Yeah, My definitely. Fair Lady. So he's like, oh, yeah. but I. He is the main character of yeah. that, right? Yeah, I guess he is the main okay. character. He's the main character. He creates his ideal woman, which is based on the George Bernard Shaw. Which, that, that guy is definitely the main character. The linguist is definitely the main character. Going back to, like, if the Mannequin Dream Girl is the main character, like, Emily seems to be okay with it. She's like, Eric brought us together. It was the jacket. And I also don't think she thinks much about, like, we fell in love when I was, to a certain extent, quote-unquote, not being myself. Yeah. Because I think it's also crazy to say that, like, who you are on a day of no consequences is your true self. Mm -hmm. So I think that's complicated too. It's it's certainly your most like ego-driven self. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's nice that she learns to not take the summer internship at all. Like I was wondering where that subplot was going to go where it was like day one, she just takes it. Day two or, you know, some, some iteration pretty early on, she decides to move past it and asks them if they know of any other internships that might be good. And she's like looking towards the future a bit. And then she, they have no consequences, just tells them off and says, like, this is your mistake. You can't fix it, whatever. And then the thing that sticks is that she says, you know what? I don't need a summer internship. I kind of just want to chill over the summer. Yeah. But also, that was another thing about her is, like, she's picking journalism. But, like, we never see her be, like, journalisty. Right. As a journalist, you think you'd be, like, a little bit more... I'm going to be an investigative reporter about this. Like, what is happening here? A hundred percent true. Yeah. That you would be trying to figure out the like mechanism of it, of it working or I don't know, like writing every day or building a skill, you know, Bill Murray learns how to play the piano. Mm -hmm. Like we could have seen her think more about like, what skills can I build? Especially being a planner. I guess there's something really interesting in her, like page one being categorized as a planner and then having to live the same day over and over again. There is no reason to plan anymore. So like that just it gets taken off the table. Like there is no tomorrow to plan for anymore. So 
if we take away that part of your personality, what's left then? Right, right. Because we do see her try to plan each of those days. And then eventually she just stops yeah. at the list because she, she's tried everything. Right. So if the list gets taken off the table, then who are you? And that's what we get on the Day of No Consequences. I thought on the Day of No Consequences, I was surprised that by the very end of the book, her ex-boyfriend got off so lightly. Yeah. Like, of course, like she shames him yeah. by dumping him over the intercom. But then she, like, totally was like, let's be friends. Right. And it never comes up in the the last couple days. It never comes up that the present he bought her would, like, kill her. I kept on waiting for her to bring up, like, dude, you bought me a silver bracelet. You actually didn't care that much about me. Like, admit it. You didn't listen. Like, you were in this for the same reason. Like, Mm -hmm. her moral development maybe is that she, in the course of these days, learns how to give up the signifiers of status. And he very much still is dependent on or in active pursuit of those symbols of status. And you can see that in a way that he treats her. Like, he treats her as something he's supposed to like. And he gets her a silver bracelet and everything like that. So he might be another dude who has moral development through the female protagonist. Although I don't actually see it, but I can see it happening in the future where he realizes, you know what, I didn't actually like her. I just like the idea of her, that she was valedictorian and like the thing I'm supposed to like. And this is the way I was supposed to behave as a boyfriend. Which he kind of says a little bit, uh, like at the end when they have like their detente at the end. Yeah, that's why I could see it happening. Like We seemed like a a well-matched pair, but like it wasn't quite right. I really do wish that he'd gotten that feedback about the bracelet, which he never gives him. Right. Because he does remember that Macy's Starbucks order. I know that Emily thinks that it's like a dumb thing. It's like, (laughs) a tall vanilla latte. Of course, she's like a 16-year-old girl. What else is our order? I'm like, Mm -mm -mm. lots of things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Teenage girl strings, lots of things. And I wish that with that like remembering piece had been like oh like I realized in that moment that like I remember things about Macy and I don't remember things about you and that must mean something also just in general I feel like in this book this is a tangent but no one is taking like health concerns seriously right the allergy bracelet is one thing yeah there's the whole storyline about like she starts off all the days and her dad's like whoa like are you a sow you're eating everything so quickly and then we find out later that she actually has a swallowing disorder that can cause right. her to choke very easily. Right. And I'm like, your dad doesn't know about your swallowing disorder? Like, <laughs> the first joke you shouldn't be making is about, like, are you a pig? It's like, right. holy crap, you, almost you, died. You, might, you might choke. <laughs> you, like, publicly choked in front of the entire cafeteria last year. Uh, same same thing with this yeah. car accident and where the car blows up. <laughs> I'm just like... Yeah, nobody... nobody. <laughs> There's so many. Like, honestly, it feels like a whole world of no consequences. <laughs> it's true. No cares about all these near-death experiences. Right? Any one of these would be transformative in my life. <laughs> if I knew that, yeah, if like my car blew up after I had a fender bender, this would be something I'd dang out on for the rest of my life. Yeah, or like, and if, and if my boyfriend and Amelia would be like, oh my God, you almost exploded in a car accident. Like instead he's like driving his girlfriend around. Yeah. Also, I've never been in a two-seater car. Can you actually fit four people in a two-seater like that? Is that possible? I, I don't know. <laughs> There's very little physical descriptions of anybody other than Nick in the book. But I think like Nick and Josh are both described as being fairly big dudes. Nick for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know how possible this is, but. It doesn't seem right. So one other thing about the difference between the Day of No Consequences and some of the previous iterations is that by the end of the Day of No Consequences, she legitimately wants 
tomorrow to happen. Like after all the other ones, she didn't actually want tomorrow to happen, or at least maybe she wants her future to happen. She wants to like go to college or whatever. But these are all fairly abstract. Whereas at the end, when she has a romantic time with Nick, like she wants to be there the next day. And so that might also be part of her break in the loop is the genuine wanting to see where this goes with Nick, which she never really had with Josh. Well, she says, I love you. I love you for seven more minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So she says, I love you. And she... Like, the day that they have where they actually make a connection and she feels seen and, like, that she's got a companion and all of these other things, she wants that to continue into tomorrow. And I don't get the sense that she ever felt that way with Josh, like, where she wanted to see where things go with Josh. Like, she just was like, on this day, I say I love you to him. And it was all planned out. It wasn't like, there wasn't a curiosity to it of, uh, like, I wonder where this will go. And that's the same with even, like, her college and everything like that. It didn't seem like she genuinely wanted to get to college. Like, she was getting through high school. With Nick, in A Day of No Consequences, there's a genuine emotional investment in tomorrow that I don't see in any of the other days. And that's a way of centering her in the story again. Well, before we knew that what was causing it was his dead brother's magical jacket, and the dead brother is the one who put them together, Mm -hmm. I thought that what broke the loop is that she said, I love you, and she meant it. Ah, okay. Because so much of her previous days have been like, this is the day that I'm going to say I love you to Josh. Right. Because we've been dating for three months, and our three-month anniversary just so happens to be on Valentine's Day. So she was trying so hard to say it. And I almost kind of wish she had succeeded. She, like, realized the quote-unquote consequences of saying it there, and Josh would be like, aw, thanks. Or, like, she's like, why doesn't it feel right? I've tried so hard to say it, and it, like, didn't came out wrong. And then when she says it with Nick, she, like, genuinely believes it with her whole heart. I thought it was the magic of I love you, a very, like, hallmark trope. Right. What's interesting about both of our hopes for this is that, like, you wanting the thing that breaks the loop to be her saying I love you and meant it. And for me, wanting it to be that she has a genuine investment like an emotional, genuine investment in seeing and being curious about the future and being curious about tomorrow, is that both of us are desperately wanting this story to be about her and that she is centered mm-hmm. in the cosmic universe, and yet and yet she is not. It's just the dude. We wish that the woman was centered in the narrative, but she's not. No, because up until that point, she is centered, and then we find out about it's all been his dead brother all along. It's about yeah, him. No, no, no. I almost wish that like his dead brother had known her. Right, that, that it's like actually about her and not just about a manic pixie dream girl coming to save his younger bro. Yeah. I actually think that if his brother's magical jacket, I think there's an interesting story here and probably a more interesting story of Nick reliving the anniversary of his brother's death mm. over and over again until he quote unquote finds like a way through his grief right. and finds love with Emily Elizabeth. Like I actually think that's probably more interesting. Yeah, there, there was actually a pretty big chunk of this novel where I believed that Nick was also reliving the day. Also in the loop! Yeah. Yes! And that they just weren't telling each other. And that's why he knew her on that one day when he didn't know her in the other days. And But if that is true, then we don't know about it. No, I think it ended up not being the case, which I really like it when two people are in a loop together. Yeah. That's why Palm Springs is so good. Yeah, and Russian Doll. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a really good innovation that the Russian Doll added to the trope. And one thing I like about Palm Springs is, like, 
the female character is waking up every day on her worst day where she slept with her sister's husband-to-be. The story of Nick going through his grief every day and be like, why do I have to relive my worst day and how do I work my day through it? And I eventually like yeah. find kinship with this woman, I think is a far more interesting story. Right. Having a male-centered narrative that is just told from a female perspective is still a male-centered narrative. Yeah. Which is fine, like, have a male narrator, like, that's fine, too. But this is just a weird, this is a weird situation. Well, especially because at the ending, it's not like she and Nick are together right away. It's like, he has to go away and go through his own thoughts about that day. Right. For, like, several weeks until her birthday in March. Yeah. So, like, for, like, two weeks, he's, like, being a weirdo. Yeah. Because the whole thing is about him. So take us with him. Yeah. And his whole thing is also a trauma narrative that draws a, like, pretty linear line between his behavior and his trauma that is frustrating too that's pretty typical in YA novels you know it's it ends with us right that like linear trauma narrative of well he had an accident his brother died and therefore he's a brain surgeon and like therefore he is abusive and there's this like very clean line between these things yeah and there never really is which is less forgivable in the Colleen Hoover because that doesn't well, I guess it does kind of pretend to be YA, but not really. That seems like it was trying to do something different. Whereas this one is very clearly YA. Like, it was actually weird because we've been reading so many romance novels that when things got steamy, it was like, oh, they're going to kiss. Are they going to kiss? Are they holding hands? And it was like not oh, yeah. the really graphic <laughs> sex scenes we've been having. <laughs> when they were in the closet, just the two of them, their bodies pressed against each other. Right, I was this like, is the love hypothesis. Stuff is getting yeah. real crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> it was not that. Well, especially on a day of no consequences, I feel like you can drive that stuff. It's like nobody's getting pregnant on a day of no consequences. Oh, my God. That would is. That would... <laughs> I definitely thought that's where it was going. I was, I was like, oh, my God. Jeez. All the characters we read about generally have like these very linear, like my trauma equals where my personality flaws are. And maybe this is something I need to be more forgiving of the main character of this book, Emily, is that her trauma is the divorce and it causes her to act in very confusing ways. But that's probably more realistic for trauma. That is totally more realistic. Yeah. If her parents' divorce situation does map onto mine as similarly as it seems like it does, I was terrible at school. But one thing that we both have in common is that we learned how to plan things way in advance just because you don't know at what house you're sleeping. So you kind of need to like plan if I want to wear this outfit on this day, I need to, you know, two weeks beforehand wear it so that it shows up at the right house and just like all the stuff you need. And so you get really good at planning things a week or two weeks in advance. You could draw a connection. Obviously the book didn't draw that connection that the reason that she's good at planning is because she's got a equal custody parental situation but people respond to trauma in different ways and drawing these like clear lines between this happened then i behave this way and it's that simple is problematic another thing that was interesting about this book that paralleled the last book we read which was kisser once for me is that they fall in love over this like long Nick and Nora's infinite playlisty sort of night, which is a very big YA trope, which I totally love. You do get to like form that like emotional intimacy through lots of questions and like getting the answers and getting to know someone really, really, really quickly. Like you almost don't need to know them in multiple loops because you just find it all out in one day. <laughs> yeah. So instead of doing an IB question, let's do the favorite movie question from the book. What's your favorite movie? And then what's your actual favorite movie? The answer is television. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like the movie that I've rewatched the most recently, so I'll, I feel fine calling it my favorite and my real favorite, is Bridget Jones's Diary. Hmm. I guess that's true. With you, you just tell people because that's part of the brand. I remember when I was a kid and I like had a favorite movie, I would tell people it was Ever After, that Cinderella movie. Oh my God. And that was your public-facing favorite movie. That was my public-facing favorite movie. But I think, like, privately, my favorite movie was probably, like, The Lion King. Right. So I think there was probably, like, a little bit of farce there. (laughs) Right. This is a harder question for people our age than it is for people who are in high school. Because in high school, you actually have that, like, public-facing, this is the way I want to be perceived favorite movie. And then you have the one that, like, actually you watch on the weekend. Right. Oh, here, I'll give, like, a more vulnerable version of this. Because it never has to do with movies. Because, again, I don't. I enjoy movies, but like TV is a better medium. I went to college and I did not grow up listening to a lot of music. And so I was like really, really scared. And this comes up in this book too, because it's like, he listens to Metallica. Mm -hmm. She listens to Taylor Swift. People judge you based on what music you listen to. And back when we were kids, it was far harder to access music than it is now. Yeah. And so I like went to the library and just checked out like the most popular CDs and then like illegally burned them. Nice. Onto my college laptop so that if people asked to see my iTunes or like, what do you listen to? I'd have an answer. And I remember someone asking me like, what's your favorite band? And I said the Beatles. So I was like, who's going to push on that? It's neutral. Right. Neutral. And the guy actually said in my dorm, he's like, no one's favorite band is actually the Beatles. It means you just have heard of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember being like mortified the same thing happened actually in middle school where we had to bring in a song and relate it to ourselves. And I brought in a Britney Spears song because I didn't know that many songs. It's hard to know songs. Like there's not access other than when you're like driving around in a car with your parents. Yeah. So I brought in a Britney Spears song and then the guy who had brought in Nirvana was like, this song is really shallow. Ooh. Like you relate to this song. Jeez. So these are- that's, that's one of those, like, I wish I knew then what I know now. Because if that happened now- and you were in class and you brought Britney Spears and then Nirvana kid was like, that's shallow. Now, future Melissa could have told that kid off and like defended the position. Absolutely. Versus I was like completely ashamed. Yeah. So I think I've always been more insecure about my music taste than my movie taste. How about you? What's your favorite movie and your real favorite movie? For this question to be interesting, I think I'd have to go back in time to be my high school self and answer this question because... Back then when I worked at Blockbuster Video and you like needed to have pretentious answers because you worked in video distribution and acquisition <laughs> and whatever else we used to say about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, the Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of things I used to say that weren't true. They were movies I liked, sure, but like they definitely weren't the ones that I liked. But I would say Cinema Paradiso, which then is like the foreign Italian film that is interesting. <laughs> And then I would say this movie called Sullivan's Travels. That is actually the movie that the Coen brothers got the title for, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou From, is an allusion to Sullivan's Travels. And it's just like really interesting, old, like black and white from the 1940s, but a very well-written story of a guy who is um, a wealthy movie director who then wants to make a movie that actually has meaning. And the movie's going to be called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So I used to say this, but the actual answer was Groundhog's Day. Like that was the one where when it was on TBS, even though it's going to take three hours with all the commercial breaks, like I just left it on because it's, it's always good. 
and you can just keep on watching it and see different things like remember that the groundhog's name was phil and his name was phil and they're like doubled and <laughs> you get like all these re- like it, it just stands up to close reading and uh, they both drive cars yeah. <laughs> they have so much in common and it's just so good like the real answers were probably like Groundhog's Day in the Sandlot, but I would say Sullivan's Travels and Cinema Paradiso. I, I think I like to hope that kids today can like like whatever they like. The amount of Taylor Swift narrative that has influenced both the last two books that we've read has been very jarring for me. Yeah, right. I had a wonderful time. We didn't even talk about having a wonderful time ruining everything. And marvelous time. Marvelous time. Marvelous time. Do you know what song that's from? Yeah, yeah. That's the one where she buys the house at the end. I don't know the name of the song, but it's like a great song on on folklore. The Last Great American Dynasty. Yeah. Which I think is an interesting choice as well. That song is so much about the shoulds. Yeah. Like, I do think it parallels the book well. No, it was a a great song. Like, that's a very thoughtful choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's about someone who's living a day of no consequences in a very, like, buttoned up society. All right. There's the normative behaviors, and then you go against them, and that's having a marvelous time ruining everything. Yeah. No, that 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 was very well chosen as a tattoo. Yes. I feel like loops of house ownership is also like an interesting thing of like, what are you building on? What are you discovering? Well, what do we want to read next time? I have really enjoyed reading all of these Rami Kami things, but I feel like we could do something a little, <laughs> something that maybe has been edited before it was published. Right, the last two we've done are holiday ones, so let's do something that is going to be good all year, yeah. and let's take uh, something from the Goodreads shortlist for YA. Anything you've been hearing about? Well, did you ever read Ember in the Ashes? Yeah, that's like one of the most exciting books I've ever read in my life. Well, the author of that book series has recently published one that's on the Goodreads top list, and it's a YA book. That is about family and forgiveness, love and loss in a sweeping story that crosses generations and continents. Just like us, we sweep continents. Yeah, I, I think I think what you mean is All My Rage by Saba Tahir. That is what I mean, James. Yeah, I mean, that story sounds very different than Ember in the Ashes, but I know she can write a story. So I'm down with this. Let's do All My Rage by Saba Tahir. Awesome. Can't wait. Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading All My Rage by Sabah Tahir. See you next month. See ya. But I know that this lady could write a story, so I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. Awesome. Anybody want to say the name of the book or the author in this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think what you mean is All My Rage by Saba Tahir. That is what I mean, James. <laughs> okay. Thank you for Googling it for me so I don't have to talk in like big yeah. sides. <laughs>